You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. I'll be teaching through 2 Corinthians again. Jess and I tag team. He's going through one of the other books of the New Testament, Philippians. And I think we will probably get through these this coming year. Yeah, both of us. Let's open in prayer. Father, first we just want to thank you for the presence of your Son in our lives the Holy Spirit bringing us your word, illuminating it so that we can be obedient to you, so that we can live lives that will glorify your Son. And that is what we live for, to bring grace, to bring glory to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace to do that. And so this morning as we open your word, Father, we look to you for teaching, for encouragement, for exhortation, for correction, and for instruction. And while we are doing that, Lord, we think of those folks, especially in in California where the big fires are. We know you are the God of the weather, and we know that you have um, your own designs, and and we honor that. We thank you for them. We know that your design is perfect. But we bring before you those folks, Lord, and ask you for... Uh, comfort and encouragement for those who are struggling with the loss of life and with loss of family, loss of homes. But we ask that you might intercede there and bring, if possible, the weather that might change and bring an end to that massive fire. We know you can do that. We trust you for whatever it is that you choose to do, Lord. We honor you in all that. We thank you this morning and ask you to give us wisdom as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to, we're reading in, we're studying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, somewhere in chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore... From now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all all new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. (laughs) So, last time we were together, we finished up with verse uh, 18. 
And we're going to kind of do a little bit of a recap. Verse 17, um, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We looked at 33 evidences or 33 results of salvation. And again, if anybody wants that list, I can email it to you. I've already sent it to someone, so I've got it formatted in just a little list. It will take up the entire front of your refrigerator, though, so be warned. So God has blessed us with incredible, incredible things at salvation. And all because of his sovereign choice, because he loved us with a love, an eternal love. And he planned this before the, before the eternities began. And then in verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then what did he do? He gave us fallen, defective sinners the ministry of reconciliation to the world. That's us, folks. That's what we get to do. We get to be ministers of reconciliation. So all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And we looked at the different definitions of the words there. And then just really quickly, the companion verse in Romans chapter 5 fleshes this out very nicely. Romans 5 excuse me, 8 through 11, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. And the purpose... One of the main purposes is for us to be the ambassadors to the world and bring that reconciliation through the means of the gospel. You can hear that in my voice, can you? God, and and sometimes we think we need to bring reconciliation to the world through political means or through psychological means or through mental or through book learning. That is not what God gave us. He gave us the gospel. And the gospel is so sufficient and so effective at reconciling people that it is all that is necessary. All those other things are details, and they're important. And they may or may not come in the life of an individual once they've trusted Christ. But the fact is, what we are to bring to the world, to impart to the world, is the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, we'll launch into verse 19 after, after I take a drink. You probably know better than to trust me with water around electronics, Jess. Where'd you go? Yeah. Verse 19. So let's read verse 18 again. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the the ministry of reconciliation, namely, or in the King James, I believe it says, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There is a sense in which the world has been reconciled to the God, actually more than a sense, a fact, in which the world has been reconciled to God by the work of Christ. But it is not that all of the world has been saved, for that would violate the clear teaching of Scripture that salvation is a work of God and is applied to the sheep that he has chosen before the foundation of the world. John the Baptist declared that Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
in John 1.29. And everyone knows what is arguably one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is called the Savior of the whole world in John chapter 4, verse 42, and in 1 John 4.14. To be true to Scripture, however, we must investigate the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God's Word. Scripture teaches, unfortunately, that most people will suffer eternal punishment. It does teach that. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine, and the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Ezekiel 18.20, The person who sins will die. The Son will not bear the punishment for that Father's iniquity, nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. What does that imply? It's an easy road to get on. What's that, Nathal? It's going to be a lot of people on that road, sadly, horrifyingly. And there are few, but, but for the gate is small. Oh, excuse me let, me, let me restart that. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, is that pretty clear? That unfortunately, there are few? Unfortunately, from our, our humanity, our sad, the sadness that we have at knowing that there are going to be plenty of unfortunate people who will not choose the way of life. They will choose the way of destruction. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say also, he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46. These, speaking of the, those who are going to perdition, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Luke chapter 13, 30, 23 through 24. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That was his answer to them. And then in John eight twenty four, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, I am he, you will die in your sins. And then Second Thessalonians 1, 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Away, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, and those who, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, <laughs> and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he, has, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Have you ever had a child, and I know this is an old analogy, but we're going to use it anyway, approach a wood stove with, with what looked like in their eye the intention to investigate that wood stove. And you went, <laughs> they're going to find out, aren't they? No, probably not. You went, don't touch the stove. You warned them. Now, if they touch the stove anyway, well, then they got a really good lesson about heat and cold and pain. But the point is, we are to warn people, why would God have said, have put all of this information in the Scriptures if it was not for us as bearers of the, as ambassadors of the reconciliation of Christ to the world, not to tell them about it? And so, and so I would say that bodies that are preaching, supposedly preaching the word, that are bereft of any reference to hell, are not preaching the whole counsel of God. It's an unfortunate thing, but warnings are important. I... Years and years ago, somebody in, and sometimes warnings seem so silly. I mean, you get a hair blower, do not use in the bathtub you know, or the shower. <laughs> you know, and, and many of you may not know this, but years ago, uh, somebody in Alaska shot himself with a Ruger 44 Magnum and he sued the company because there was no warning. There was no warning. He bought the gun used and whoever sold it to him didn't have the original box and the original warning manual, the original manual with the warnings that were in it. So that's why nowadays, whenever you buy a firearm, usually it has a book printed on the side of the barrel. If you can't, if you don't have the manual, you can get it at Ruger, Sturm Ruger in Connecticut. You know, <laughs> makes the gun weigh less. I guess you move all, remove all of that. But the point is, warnings are important. And so God has put these warnings in here, not just for filler, but for us to be aware of as we bring the ministry of reconciliation to the world. Part of reconciliation is letting the unreconciled know what they have done to become unreconciled so that they can know what needs to be done to be reconciled. The universal language in this passage refers to mankind in general here in, in 2 Corinthians. Christ died for men without distinction, but not without exception. Let me repeat that. Christ died for men without distinction. I don't care. He does... This is, an, this is a human way of putting it. And I, I hate to use the words not care, but it's the best way I can come up with. He doesn't care what color they are, what sex they are, what position they have in some place of power, whether they're tall, skinny, short, whatever. He doesn't, that's without distinction. He died for men and women without distinction, but not without exception. In other words, there is no class of mankind, no nationality, no sex, or any other distinction that would render them unsuitable for salvation. Clearly, though, Christ did not die for everyone without exception. The general call of salvation goes out to all men. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's an exclusive statement. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. 
Who chooses? Did I? No, I did not. I wouldn't have. I was darkened. I would have chosen the darkness every time if it hadn't have been for the Holy Spirit regenerating me. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Those to whom the ministry of reconciliation has been committed, that is, believers, can deliver the gospel to every person who they come in contact with. But although the gospel is freely offered to all, only those who will believe will have their sins washed away. Further, God determined from 2 o'clock, 6,000 B.C., who would be saved. 2 o'clock, 2.14 a.m. in the morning. No, it says time immemorial. He determined from time immemorial. He didn't date stamp when he chose you and you and you for salvation in Christ. It's been an eternity that he chose it. An eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Revelations 13.8, Revelation 13.8. All, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation 17.8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was not, that he was and is not and will come. And Second Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure, Paul says, all things for the sake of those who are chosen, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. And Second Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Second Thessalonians 2.14, one verse farther. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers have been called. The sheep heard his voice, and they trusted him. They entered through the door. Christ laid down his life for the sheep, the bride, the church that the Father would give to him. John 10, 11. And anyone, any of you who were here when Jim was going through John, this was, this was beautifully hammered home again and again and again, that salvation is a choice of God, that salvation is a gift. It is a gift. And even that the faith that was required to accept that gift, it was even given to us by the Father. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 17, 9. The great prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Romans 8, 32 and 33. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And then Ephesians 5, 25, that wonderful passage that men use to browbeat their wives. Oh, wait a minute. Is that what I said? which they shouldn't. They should be paying attention to what it says to them. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved His church and gave Himself up for her. Now, there's a whole lesson in that about marriage, but we're just looking at the representation of what Christ did. He gave Himself up 
for the church, for the body of Christ, for the beloved, for the bride, for the sheep. And so it is in this sense that God gives common grace to all men and his, reconcili- his reconciliation of men through Christ is such that the salvation message goes out to the whole world, but only of the elect will be regenerated and will trust Christ. In no way is universalism taught here. Rather, the concept of potential actual salvation is taught. Christ is potentially... Was Christ's birth, death... I, let, me, let me slow down and say this slowly. Was Christ's death enough of a propitiation if the entire body of the human race was going to be saved. Was it enough? Of course it was. It was, an, it was everything God does is sufficient. But only the elect are what the propitiation ends up being applied to. His death could have saved the entire human race from the beginning of time until the end. Not all will be saved, though we saw those warning verses that many will not choose, many will not be chosen. Many will not be elect. Not all will be saved, and those who will not believe can justly be condemned. All men are saved in the temporal sense. They are protected, sustained, allowed to access to food, water, and other things. But in the eternal sense, Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, as it says in 1 Timothy 4.10. This, what a marvelous verse. By the way, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. It is the best commentary on itself. I just... You should be wearing your Bibles out, flipping back and forth. And with the modern technology we have, the, these chain references, it's a wonderful thing. You can jump back and forth and, and, and verify and, and corroborate and expand. It's a wonderful thing. Not counting their trespasses, it says in this in 1 Timothy 4.10, for, for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now in this verse that we're studying, chapter 5, verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against them is the description of reconciliation. That is what reconciliation is. When you reconcile in a family feud, if you will, with someone that you've been, you've been struggling with, both of you stop counting the things you did against each other as of having any importance. That's what reconciliation is. It's not counting their trespasses against them. Doesn't mean they didn't do what they did, but you forgive them. The forgiveness of sins. Once a sinner's sins are forgiven, then that sinner can truly be reconciled to God. It is iniquity that has made a separation between man and God. Christ died in the place of those who would believe, and that wondrous truth has been committed to all believers to spread everywhere. Now, we don't know who the chosen are, so we better tell everybody. We don't know who's going to make it out of the fire, so we better stand at the door and usher as many as we can through it, whoever, they, whoever comes to the door. And who is the door? But let's be grateful that it's the Holy Spirit that has the responsibility of salvation. We don't have the responsibility. We don't have the responsibility. What a terrible responsibility that would be. It's the Holy Spirit who is in charge of that. In the sense of solid, trustworthy, the sense of solid, trustworthy information that is conveyed by the translation of the Greek word logos is conveyed here. This word, uh, word, the word translated logos is um, the word of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. And there's a great body of of, uh, descriptive information about that word in ancient Greek writings. 
It is the difference between truth and myth. I'm sorry, but according to the Scriptures, there is no other name among he- under heaven among by whom men shall be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't quite quote that accurately, but sometimes the apostles didn't either. You know, they didn't quote the Old Testament exactly, but you can look it up. There is no other name under heaven by whom men will be called to be saved but the name of Christ Jesus. There aren't many ways to God. There's one way, and he has outlined it in his, in his word. So the translation of this Greek word, there were many myths circulating in the ancient Greek world as there are today. Many of them were false ideas about heaven and hell. One commentator explained it this way. Um, He said, in Greek thought, logos or logos indicates what is true and trustworthy as opposed to the term myth, mythos, which is descriptive of what is fictitious and spurious. Socrates, for example, declares that a particular story is no fictitious myth but a true logos. Hence, the term logos carries with it, like a kind of overtone, the implication of truth and genuineness and is accordingly peculiarly appropriate as a synonym for the gospel, which is the word of truth. So this is the word of reconciliation. There are numbers of places where there are phrases with the preposition of, the word of truth, the word of, tre- word of reconciliation, the word of life, many, many in the scripture. And that cements for us that it is the word of God, it is the truth of God that is the truth. Let everything else be a myth. Any questions about verse 20 or verse 19? Comments? Verse 20, therefore, and here comes the, here comes the work, the duty. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The position of an ambassador is at once highly responsible and a highly responsible and important position. And yet, with regard to the Christian, it is humbling and terrifying as well. Paul is saying that God speaks through Christians to the world. Now, he speaks through his word. Don't misunderstand me. That is what we need to be using. But often, the first thing the world sees is you. It's a remarkable thing, but today, there are many people who have never even picked up a Bible. They only, the only way they know to use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is as a curse word. And they don't, in many cases, even know that they're not supposed to be doing that. It's not an intentional thing. It's the culture that we're in, which is very much post-Christian, at least in my estimation. Paul is saying that Christians, that God speaks through Christians to the world. Christians do not speak in their own name, nor do they speak on their own authority. They do not speak their own opinions. They shouldn't. Nor do they voice their own demands. They speak as a representative of the King of Heaven, and they are authorized to speak in His name. So the word ambassador is, is the same word as the presbuel, where we get the word elder or older person. The idea is this is an older person who has the gravitas and the authority and the presence to convey from a, from a potentate to some people, the directions that the king has given, the information that the king has given. So now, I was thinking about this, and uh, we'll talk about it, but in this sense, it is in this sense that Haman was an ambassador for Xerxes. Remember Haman, the guy who tried to get all the Jews killed? He was actually Ahasuerus' ambassador. He was sent by Ahasuerus to to take word out to 
the populace, the 127 provinces, in this particular case, to the Jews. And thus, Haman's outrage when Mordecai would not bow was very real because he represented the king. Later, when a message had to be communicated throughout the provinces, letting the Jewish people know that they could fight back on the day that they were were to be killed, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the book of Esther. Okay, I'm, I'm making some pretty plain assumptions here, but I'm sure you are. On the day that, the, that an ambassador had to be sent to the, prof, to, to the provinces, letting the Jewish people know that they could fight back on the day that they were to be killed, Ahasuerus again sent an ambassador. And that ambassador had to proclaim the exact message that was given to him. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people's lives depended upon it. Does that sound familiar? The message we've been given? Lives depend on it. Eternal lives depend on it. And so it is in this sense that believers are ambassadors for God. We are not to impose our own opinions or ideas. We are to communicate the gospel in its purity because this is the message from the king that we have been handed to accurately deliver. Now, we can use anecdote, and we can use um, stories, and we can use, but the foundation must be the Bible and the gospel. And that is what we should spend our time on. It doesn't need our help. I wish I had that quote. Spurgeon said something like, the, the Bible is a lion. Or the, someone in here must know that quote by heart. But basically, it's the Bible is like a lion. Set it loose, it will defend itself. That's a, that's a very loose adaptation of his quotation. We need to be about the business of understanding and communicating the Word of God. And fortunately and gratefully, this body is a good example of that, and I'm grateful to, be, to belong to this body. So it's in this sense that we are ambassadors. We are to be familiar with the message of the king. We are to be thrilled with the message of the king, even the hard parts. We are to be faithful to the message of the king. And this is the message, the word of God. So, do you find yourself throughout the week, sometimes repairing back to scripture that you've heard, trying to figure out ways to make it more clear to people? That's a good thing. That's what God wants us to be doing. But be careful to use Scripture to comment on Scripture. There are good commentaries out there, very good ones. But God wants you to think through these things and to be able to use His Word as the sword that He wants you to have in your hand. So, any comments or questions about verse 20? We're going to finish this chapter today. Maybe. Verse 21. He made, oh, this, is, this has got to be one of the most, does anybody have favorite verse, a favorite verse in the Bible? You know, it's okay to have one. You're not actually saying the rest of the Bible's bunk. No, you're just saying this is a gem among gems, and this is the one. But what you'll find, at least what I've found, is over the years, it changes as God works in your life, and different things have to be purged, and different things are exciting. Different verses will happen. But this is probably one of the most wondrous verses in the Bible. It's, it's almost like somehow the Holy Spirit, in His wisdom, has been able to encapsulate the gospel in 15 words. I think that's how many there are in the Greek. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, which of you convinces me of sin? Pilate declared, that he could find no guilt in Christ. 
the thief on the cross, the Roman centurion, and the unmitigated declaration of Scripture is that the Lord Jesus Christ was and is sinless. Conversely, and sadly, there is no one living and no one who has ever lived that can make the claim of not being a sinner. The Scripture declares that everyone has fallen short and that indeed men will in all cases on their own seek darkness rather than more rather than move towards the light. They will, on their own, seek darkness rather than move towards the light. Now, there are some decent, nice unbelievers. And we all have met some. And some of us, before we became believers, were not very decent and not very nice. And there's people in here who've known me for many years, and they say, yeah, that's pretty true. But that's not the comparison that God makes. It's the righteousness of Christ that he's looking for. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The scripture declares that everyone has fallen short and that men will in all cases seek darkness. Ancient and even modern people attempt to appease angry gods who would exact retribution for real or imagined misdeeds. Religions beyond count have been come up with in man-centered ways, have come up with man-centered ways to appease their angry gods. Jehovah, however, reached into human history, and the man-god, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin. The Father, from time immemorial, executed his plan to place upon Jesus Christ, the sin-bearer, every sin of every believer who ever had or ever would live. He then exchanged that sin with the righteousness that the sinless Christ had. And so if you could picture this, you've got a ledger, and in the ledger, all the numbers are red. You're broke, you're completely in debt, you are owned by every creditor you have. And God reached into that ledger and he changed all the numbers to black. You no longer have any debt, none. It's all paid. Wouldn't that be a relief? It would be a relief to me. I don't know, I didn't know they made as much red ink as they do, but they do. This is a remarkable and unbelievable exchange that was planned, initiated, and executed by the triune God on behalf of the bride of Christ. In this one verse, this one verse captures the entire essence of what you could call that cosmic exchange marvelously. Christ was not made a sinner. Let's not mistake that. He was not made a sinner. Christ was and always has been perfect, the man-God, the second person of the Trinity. Nor was he punished for any sin of his own. We need, I know this is basic Christianity, but Peter said, Peter said in his epistle, he said, I'm not ashamed to put you in remembrance of the, what I, in the Greek is the basics, the first things. Peter wasn't ashamed of it, so I'm not going to be ashamed of it. We need to remember these things. Christ was not made a sinner, nor was he punished for any of his own sin. His perfect, spotless record did not change, if you will. But our mangled, evil, horrifying record was exchanged for his. All of our failings were marked down on Christ's ledger, and his perfection was entered into ours. Now, interesting thing, none of his numbers turned red because he's the man, he was the son of God, and he purged those sins from the ledger, purged them. All the black marks disappeared as we became children of the Most High. No man can make the claim that he did this. No man, no woman can make the claim that they made the exchange, that they changed the ledger numbers from black 
from red to black, that they put on the righteousness of Christ. God did that for you. After salvation, after baptism, after all these things, if you will, and you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, none of the, the method of forgiveness and reconciliation does not change. One does not need to kneel and recite monotonous made-up prayers or sections of Scripture even to plead for forgiveness and reconciliation. It was done. It was done. One simply needs to do the same thing they did when they first came to Christ. Go to Him, confess, ask forgiveness, rise up and obey. What does it say in 1 John 1, 9? If you confess your sins, this is after salvation. This is maintaining our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with the Father. If you confess your sins, he who is faithful, he is faithful to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This was done by God himself on our behalf, and because of this, we become the very righteousness of God himself. I don't think we're going to really comprehend that this side of heaven. I think that's one of those things that we see through, at least I see through a glass darkly. I can't imagine having the righteousness of Christ, knowing what I am. I can't imagine it. Seems like such a, God got gypped really bad. But he chose to do that. He chose to do that. So then we all, all believers, come back to Christ and seek forgiveness And Scripture says, and see, indeed, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That doesn't change. Encapsulated in this one sentence is the totality of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that you can memorize um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 21, and you're done. (laughs) But it's a good one. It's good to memorize it. Christ was the sinless offering who became the location, if you will, of all the sins of every believer. And because Christ's work and, of Christ's work and sacrifice, we became the location of the righteousness of Christ that God requires for eternal life. The map of, of eternity showed that the location of sin was the sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The longitude and the latitude were lo- the Lord Jesus Christ. And the location of righteousness, His righteousness, became us. What an exchange. And so this verse, it's like, it's like a diamond placed in the middle of a bunch of gems. It stands out, at least to me. It's a marvelous verse. It's a marvelous comfort to recognize that everything that is ever needed was done one time for all by Christ. So any comments before we close chapter 5? Any, anything at all? Yes. The modern-day gospel, unfortunately, seems to incorporate a lot of humanism, a lot of attempted psychology, a lot of... Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all psychology is wrong. Even a blind hog finds an acorn now and then. And some of them psychologists have gotten it right occasionally. But we're not to use the study of the soul, psychology. We're to use the scripture. And so I think, correct me if I'm wrong, or you other elders or any of you other teachers in here, when we focus on other than God's word as the foundation, and look for answers in it to deal with our interpersonal relationships after salvation, with our interpersonal relationships, our responsibilities to government, our responsibilities to others, our responsibilities to our children, to our... When we look elsewhere, then we end up trying to make Scripture connect with that or conform to that. And that, I believe, is part of what has caused such a 
a massive disconnect with the true gospel. We've been doing that for so long. We have such a body, even built up in the church, of other information first, and let's see what the Bible says about this. We really should be the kind of people say, well, let's see what the Bible says about this first. That's not to say that this other information may not be valuable and useful, but God, who is at work in you to change you, to bring you to completion, is using his word to do it. We should use it too. Yes? Yeah, God is not, as you said, monochromatic. He's a rainbow. I hate to use, when you use analogies to try to describe God, you know, (laughs) is rainbow bad? Oh, that's right, it's bad nowadays. I don't care. He made the rainbow, and he said it was a promise that he would never flood the earth again. It's his creation, and I'm going to use it. And they can just get another life. Right. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he says. Yeah, not self-help. Does everybody hear that? Men have taken the gospel and made it more palatable, more tasty. Um, The gospel has a taste of its own, and it doesn't need seasoning. Yes? It's another gospel. Yeah, amen. He called them foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. Anybody want to guess what the word foolish is a translation of? Moron. We all, every word in every culture has a different weight to it. In the ancient Greek world, the word moron probably didn't quite have the connotation it has today. Today, it's a, it's a heavy word. It means you're an idiot. That, you know, you, you don't know the difference between the post and the ground that it's in. If anyone preaches to you another gospel other than what we have preached to you, let him be published. Because that's what happens. But he should be accursed, the scripture says. And so as we, as believers, are sitting under teaching, that, doesn't, that means your responsibility is not to just sit and listen. It is to compare. It is to think. It is to check Scripture. It is to make certain that the teachings you are being given are thoroughly scriptural. And I think you know none of the four of us that are elders are averse to being corrected when we're wrong. Please, I don't want to have you put the tire on too lightly, too loosely, and have it come off in the middle of your drive to Coeur d'Alene, if that's a good analogy. The truth is, 115 foot-pounds or whatever. Nathel. No accountability. Well, I'm going to tie this up, but I would say one thing about it, one more thing about it, and that is all of the words of Scripture are true. And so... If you deny that in the beginning God created in six days, you have begun walking down the path of deciding what in Scripture is true for you and what is not. If it isn't all true, it's worthless. It's a really good story, but it has a horrible effect on people. If it's all true, and it is, we need to believe all of it. I heard another decent expositor of the Scripture recently. Well, you know, Genesis 1 is, I don't take it literally. So I no longer take anything he says literally. I'm sorry. I know that sounds judgmental, but the Bible says of itself, thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy word. I'm still in the King James. I've memorized the King James for so many years. Okay, finishing up chapter 5. So chapter 5 closes. Paul has taken us through a reminder that our earthly dwelling fades away 
but our heavenly dwelling which awaits us is eternal and that immediately upon leaving this dwelling, we enter our eternal dwelling. There's no soul sleep. There's no distance in time. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. There is no wait. There's no second place, no place of purging. There is here, he said, and then there is there. Paul struggled mightily with the desire to be at home with the Lord, but he knew that the Father had great work for him to do, and so he labored on in his earthly tent, longing for his heavenly body and dwelling, but doing the work God had given and sent him to do, the ambassadorship God had given to him. Then Paul reminds the Corinthians that the very reconciliation that he brought to them, the gospel, was their responsibility as ambassadors of God, of God himself, to take to the world. The chapter ends with that glorious verse that we just talked about that succinctly ties up the entire concept of the gospel. Christ, the sin-bearer, takes all of the sin of believers and gives all of his righteousness to them at salvation. And thus, chapter 5 closes. And you could almost end the book there. But the Holy Spirit had a better idea. So we'll be looking at verse chapter 6 in a couple weeks. I think Jess will be, probably be teaching in Philippians again next week. Let's, cro- let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the magnificent work you did of giving us both the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the word in flesh, and then communicating about him to us through the living word of God. We take it as it is written. We believe you. We trust you. We thank you that you have even given us that faith so that we can indeed trust and obey. And we ask for those things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.